Let's pray together first. Lord, we thank you that you've brought us together to worship you today. We thank you for your word. We pray that you would bless it to us now. Shape us, we pray, to love you more and serve you better. We ask these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. Betty, uh, Benjamin Hardy is an organizational um, psychologist that I appreciate. And he uh, talks about things like this. Um, potential. Uh, setting goals. Moving into your future self. He and his wife adopted uh, three children from the foster system some months ago. And when they came, they were living without a lot of the natural support that kids really need. Their parents were on drugs. They didn't take them to school. They didn't offer them emotional support at home. And so the state came and put them into the foster system. Hardy uses that experience to explain what it's like uh, when it comes to vision. He talks about the Pygmalion effect. The idea is that the vision that we have is often influences how we move into the future. Have high expectations, that improves performance, generally speaking. And his adopted children, they were once in a setting where they didn't have much view of their future. They had limited expectations. And that was in part because their parents had very limited expectations. Well, isn't it different for the children of God? When you think about the future, for example, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, Eye has not seen, neither has ear heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love him. And then he goes on sort of to emphasize the point, and he says, God has revealed these things to us by his spirit. In other words, followers of Christ have a relationship with the Lord that is marked by great promises for the future. That's kind of a 30,000 foot view. But we live here at ground zero. And um, so an important question is this one for you. When you think about your future, what is shaping your view of it? What keeps you going, especially when you're discouraged, when you hit bumps in the road? What keeps you going when you're confused? Well, as followers of Christ, it's our opportunity and privilege to live in the light of the future that the Lord has cast for us. And that's what Peter calls us to follow in these last verses that we just read. Jesus is coming back again. As followers of Christ, we look forward to the end of history. There's a new heaven and a new earth coming in which, is, in which righteousness dwells. And in between now and then, 
we get to live in light of that future? How do we do it? Peter is going to answer that question. It's the section from which, Paul, uh, from which Bill just read, um, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 to 18. And we're going to look at it this way. We're going to begin with thinking about a key relationship that Peter sketches out for us. And then after we've done that, we'll look at kind of the implications of that relationship for here and now, and then we'll come back and see the importance of the gospel for all that we're doing. So 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 to 18, if you have it in front of you. What's the key relationship here in this section and really in this whole chapter? It's mentioned in verse 1, verse 8, verse 14, verse 15, and then verse 17. Do you see it? Verse 1, verse 8, verse 14, 15, and 17. It's the word beloved. Yes, exactly. It's a term of endearment, of affection. It speaks of respect, of, of benevolent regard. It's not based on performance. It's a gift. It comes to us as the overflow of God's free choice. And Peter underscores this beloved setting in which we find ourselves by repeating it again and again and again. And what's the emphasis? In the Christian life, relationship precedes responsibility. We could say that to ourselves about a thousand times. In the Christian life, relationship precedes responsibility. But what happens if a follower of Christ gets a little foggy-brained when it comes to this particular relationship. We're loved by the Lord. What happens if that's not in the forefront of his thinking? Suppose instead of thinking and acting like a treasured, adopted child of God, a Christian thinks, you know, life really for me is more like being an orphan. I'm alone. I'm at the mercy of a hostile world. I don't have what it takes. I don't have resources that are adequate to the challenges before me. I have to sort of scrape and scrimp and claw just to make it in this world. Uh, our Christian friend may recite the Apostles' Creed to himself. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And he may recite it with all the enthusiasm he can muster. All the while he lives as if God is not his loving Father, but rather a frowning taskmaster. He has little joy. He's critical, judgmental of others. God's word is not the source of promises that blow wind into his sails. Instead, the Bible's commands are simply uh, kind of held over him as a burden. He's never good enough. Well, with this one word then, Peter changes the whole landscape. 
He makes the gospel central to living between now and when Jesus returns. You're loved. You're accepted by the Lord. He has very good things in mind for you. Now we just want to pause here and say to ourselves that uh, Bible writers uh, not only say things, but they do things with what they say. They use their words to accomplish certain objectives. Uh, they invite us, broad strokes, they invite us into a world that they're portraying with their words. Now let's think about the implications of this idea for life between now and when Jesus comes back again. What is Peter doing with these verses? Well, you might say he's giving a pep talk. He's saying, here's how you live between now and then. And we know that because of the way he structures his thoughts. There are four key words that are all the same kind of words in these five verses. What are they? Well, they're all verbs. There are about 80 words used in this whole section. Four of them are verbs. They're not only verbs, but they're also all alike in this sense. They are all commands. They're imperatives. The Lord says to his people, do this and don't do that. And they point beyond themselves to the way that the Lord wants us to live between now and when he returns. Peter is inviting us to live in a future-oriented world, one that is shaped by God's priorities, by his principles, and by his practices. And God's end game, as you follow along on this path that he's going to outline, as you follow along, as you respond in faith and obedience, the Holy Spirit will move in you and help you to be more like Jesus himself. Now think about that. The Lord will help you to be more like Jesus. Amazing. But that's what, that's what Peter is teaching. So Jesus is coming again, and now Peter's going to sketch out the implications. And where does he start? Well, he starts with the exact point that Bill made before he read the scripture. He starts on this repetition of where we find ourselves. Beginning of verse 14. Since you are waiting for these, waiting for what? Well, the waiting goes back to verse 12, for example. Waiting for the day of God. Or verse 13. Waiting for a new heavens and a new earth. We're in waiting mode. But that doesn't mean that we're to be passive. Quite the opposite. Because we're waiting, we're to be active. Before us are climactic changes. So what's the first command? Which is the first verb? It's there in verse 14. Do you see it? Be diligent to be found in him without spot or blemish and at peace. 
And we saw the same verb a couple weeks ago. Uh, it's get the spiritual let out. That's the force of be diligent. Don't be sort of wallowing around in the middle. Get after life. Spot and blemish take us back to the beginning of the book, to chapter 2, verse 13. There Peter talks about false teachers and he casts them this way. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. False teachers are not what they seem. This notion of being without blemish also takes us back to the Old Testament. A worshiper was to offer a sacrifice that didn't have any imperfections as far as he could tell looking at the outside. Israel was to give God their best offering, not something left over. And now Peter uses that image as a metaphor to say to followers of Christ, bring your best to the Lord, not in terms of so much how you look on the inside, but bring your whole best as a whole person to the Lord. Followers of Jesus are called to be spiritually upright. They're called to be morally upright. That's God's call on your life. Keep working toward spotlessness. Keep working toward blamelessness, and it's directly related to the coming of Christ. When Jesus comes back again, well, it takes us right to the gospel. 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. What do they say? What do those verses say? 1 John 3, 2 and 3. Anybody know? Now we are sons of God, and it has not yet appeared what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we'll be like him, for we will see him as he is, and everyone who has this hope in him purifies and keeps on purifying himself even as he is pure. Spiritual and moral uprightness, yes. And there's another pursuit besides those. Be diligent, be speedy to be found in peace. Do you see it there? Now, the Hebrew term for peace was shalom. And it envisions soundness, health, well-being between God and man. In Isaiah, we're told, uh, God makes this promise. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusts in thee. And uh, that's the God side of it. How about how we relate to one another? We're to be about the business of peace. Psalm 34, verse 14. Seek peace and pursue it. Go hard after spiritual and moral uprightness and peace. Make progress in your relationship. Don't wallow around as if there's nothing you can do to prepare for the coming of Christ. And you say, well, how do these character traits prepare me for the coming of Jesus? Think about a wedding. What's a bride want? She does not want to have an argument with her mother on the day of the wedding. I'll tell you that. And that often happens. 
Neither does she want people in the wedding party arguing with each other. She wants peace, right? And her dress has to be just perfect. And her hair and her nails, everything has to be the flowers. Well, Jesus is coming. And holiness and peace are becoming to greeting him. So this is the very first way, the first command, the first directive to prepare for Christ's return. Now there's a second one, but this is the first one. Get your life cleaned up and live in peace. What's the second one? Verse 15. Keep on treasuring the time you have for what it is. Keep on treasuring the time that you have for what it is. This is the way Peter says it. Count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Now, when he talks about counting, he doesn't mean one, two, three, four, five. That's not what he means by counting. Instead, he's saying, consider, think about life this way. Think about the patience of our Lord as salvation. When did Peter last use the word patience in this book? It's back in verse 9. You see it. Jesus hasn't returned yet because the Lord is being patient with his church. The Lord is being patient with you. That's the reason he hasn't come back yet. And so every day he delays gives you more time to engage with lost people. It's a precious time. It's a time of salvation for those who will yet believe in Christ. And the Bible tells us there's an innumerable host that are going to fall before the Lamb. So use this in-between time to full gospel advantage. Preach the gospel regularly to yourself, first of all, and then share it with those who are around you who have not yet come to faith. Matters of eternal destiny are before you day by day by day as the Lord forestalls his return. Our church in Spring City once did a training week on, weekend on personal evangelism. I really liked the guy who spoke. My main takeaway had reference to this notion of God's patience and salvation. Now, this is what he said. Whenever you get a chance, wear cargo pants. That was it, and that was my takeaway. Do you know why he said it? Because he said, yeah, you know those big patch pockets. You can put all kinds of scripture in those pockets and they don't get wrinkled. And then when the Lord brings you to somebody who is open to the gospel, you got something you can give him. Right there in your cargo pants. So, be focused on holiness. That's the first directive. The second one is, keep treasuring the time that you have for what it is. It is precious for you 
and your own development, and it's precious for the sake of those who have yet to come to Christ. There is a third word of command, and it's in verse 17. Be careful lest you slip. Take care that you're not carried away with lawless people and lose your stability. Now, we noted this before, but let's say it again to ourselves. You live in a spiritual battle zone, right? There are spiritual hand grenades going off all around you. There's great temptation to give in. You turn on your phone to check your email, and boom, up comes a suggestive ad. You were not, you totally you weren't thinking about this, but it's right there in front of you now. You've got to do something with it. In light of our Lord's return, keep watching for danger. Be on the alert. Be on the alert like the shepherds were there keeping watch over their flocks by night. They're looking for wolves and other bad guys. Be like a jailer who's vigilant as he watches over the prisoners. Now, these are external dangers that force themselves upon you. But this is also a word to watch internally what's going on. You know the kid's song. Be careful, little eyes, what you see, little ears, what you hear, little feet, where you go. Watch out inside and watch outside. Without vigilance, life can end for a Christian in what is a shipwreck. We just loved Richard and his wife, Bonnie, and their three kids. They were regular attenders at church, fun to be around, very giving, except Richard loved his booze and his money more. Once on a summer day, bright summer day, in broad daylight, He's drunk as can be, and he goes and steals a 55-gallon drum of chemicals that he's going to use in his mushroom house. And it wasn't hard for anybody to track him down. And he was convicted. And it was downhill from that point on. Separation, divorce, more drunkenness, and eventual death from cirrhosis of the liver the saddest thing. I will say to you that based on a conversation with him shortly before he died, I believe he's with the Lord. But between the time that he was delivered from his suffering, there was wreckage strewn all over the place, and it's going on in ensuing generations. So be careful lest you slip. You're not beyond it, apart from the grace of God. Keep on, the tr keep on treasuring the time that you're given for what it is, and keep on being focused on holiness and a life of peace. Jesus is coming, and Peter has one more word for us, one more command for the between now and then. And it's in verse 18. Grow in grace and knowledge 
of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here's the exciting thing. You will never get too old to grow to be more like Jesus. Doesn't matter where age you are now. You can be more like Jesus. And that's Peter's directive. Keep on growing. Keep on growing in grace and in knowledge. Now, Peter ends his book with really where he begins. His opening words are, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. He's full circle now. Knowledge worthy of the name is knowledge that's rooted in Christ. And so faced with the reality of those who would deny Jesus as Savior and Judge, Peter says in effect, root yourselves in Christ. Seek his help. Walk by faith. Walk in his light. This is the only way that you can be safe. In other words, the best defense against danger is a vibrant offense pursuing the Lord. So you say to me, well, how can I grow in Christ? Well, I'll tell you. There are means that the Lord has given us to grow. They're, in some sense, very simple. You read the Bible regularly. You memorize the Bible. You come and gather with God's people every Sunday to worship. You fellowship with God's people. You take communion when it's distributed. If you're not baptized, you become baptized and part of a Christian fellowship. And along the way, you pray. Say, Lord, show me how I might better serve you. Give me additional opportunities. Martin Luther wrote these seemingly surprising words. Love God and sin boldly. That was in 1521. He had just stood trial for his faith. There's an organization called Together for the Gospel, and they comment on Luther's remarks. He was in Wartburg Castle at the time, hiding to avoid execution. He's responding to his friend Melanchthon, who has asked if certain misguided practices in the church are sinful. And now Luther goes on with this response. He says, good works contribute nothing to your justification. So stop trying to add good works as if they're somehow meritorious. And then he writes, if God's mercy is true, you must therefore bear the true and not an imaginary sin. God does not save those who are only imaginary sinners. Be a sinner and let your sins be strong, but let your trust in Christ be stronger and rejoice in Christ who is the victor over sin, death, and the world. We will commit sins while we're here. For this life is not a place where justice resides. We, however, says Peter, 
are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where justice will reign. It suffices that through God's glory, we have recognized the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. No sin can separate us from Him. Even if we were to kill or commit adultery thousands of times a day, do you think such an exalted Lamb paid merely a small price with a meager sacrifice for our sins? Pray hard, for you are really quite a sinner. The article ends like this. The more that you get used to the fact that you're a sinner, the more the cross will make sense as the ground for your entire life. The boldness of sin takes us to the cross. It's the boldness to admit we really do need Jesus. Do you really need Jesus today? Yeah. Martin Luther thinks you really need Jesus today. Even if you commit a thousand murders or adulteries in one day, the sacrifice of Christ is enough. You're not saved by good works, but you're not saved without good works. And this is the pep talk that Peter is giving now. God is at work in you, both to will and to do his good pleasure. Therefore, because God is at work, you can work. So, between now and Christ's return, stay focused on holiness and peace, like the bride preparing for her wedding. Second, keep treasuring your time for what it is. Remember cargo pants. And being ready to give a reason for the hope that is in you whenever the Lord raises the possibility. Be careful lest you slip. Watch out for danger like the shepherds. They're taking care of their sheep. And keep on growing. Use the means of grace and ask for more opportunities to grow, to be like Jesus. And so we end 2 Peter with where Peter ends. To Christ be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Lord, bless your word to us. We thank you for it. We love you. We want to serve you better. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.